Welcome to Chroma Diversity, a podcast for clinicians, therapists, and families about common genetic diversity in children and adults. I'm Elliot Pollack, founder of the Chroma Diversity Foundation, and I'll be your host. Today, you'll hear the second part of my conversation with Jody Samuels, the unstoppable author of Hutzpah Wisdom and Wine, and mom of Kayla, her teen daughter with Down syndrome. In the first part, Jody shared with brutal honesty the story of her journey from shock to acceptance of her child's diagnosis at three days old, and how she became an outspoken global disability advocate. In this episode, you'll find out what Jody actually means when she says she hates kindness, and why she calls not just for inclusion, but radical inclusion. You'll also get a sneak peek into her upcoming book featuring useful tips and practical guidance for parents who have children with disabilities. One of the things I say when I give my talks is I say I hate kindness. I, I don't hate kindness for what it's meant to be. I hate the fact that we've become a society that's become about ticks. We think like, well, if we donated to an organization that deals with disabilities, tick. Oh, we invited someone over for a meal, tick. Oh, sixth grade children have these like projects where they have to go out and, you know, their kindness projects and go work in the community. Oh, we go visit an old person for an hour. Oh, we go help a kid with a disability for an hour. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of values and benefits that come out of it, but we've created a society where we give ticks for doing those things, for writing checks, for, but what we haven't done is we haven't created a society that where people truly open their homes, their hearts, their schools, their religious institutions, their sports centers. What we've done is we've created very, very good not-for-profits that serve lots of needs on the outskirts of society. But are we truly celebrating people with disabilities? Are we celebrating diversity? Are we really including them? Are we building a society where they really can be included? Now, look, do I think it's better that we've come in a world where, you know, the kids were locked up in institutions and people like me had this knee-jerk reaction of like, I couldn't even look at a person with a disability. I was so uncomfortable because they were so not part of society. But now we've created a situation so the kids will see Kayla and they'll high-five her and they'll be friendly. You know, Kayla's not stupid. You know what she'll say to me when I say, Kayla, how's it going at school? She'll say, Emma, mommy, the girls are very kind to me, but nobody's my friend. Okay, so we've created a society with lots of smiles, lots of high-fives. We've created a society with lots of like, well, we visit a kid with a disability for an hour a week. We've created lots of programs. Even when we invite people with disabilities to come visit synagogues and church groups and whatever, we've created, we're still creating the other. My whole thing about, right, when you invite these people and then you make a special deal about them and you like, you know, dance around them and you invite them for meals and you, we, we're still creating the other. What these people want is not to be the other. They want to be you. And absolutely, they want to be accepted just like someone who is born slightly uglier or slightly shorter or slightly taller or more sporty or more musical or more nerdy. 
why are we creating a society that is still creating the other? And the more money and the more, um, the better we build these institutions, the better we're building the walls around them in saying, what a good job we're doing is servicing these populations, but we're creating the other. We are not truly integrating these people in society. When you talk about radical inclusion, you're not talking about kindness. Many people have very good intentions, but also hell is paved with good intentions, <laughs> yeah. as they say. It sounds to me you're talking about advocacy and change. Is that right? It starts with that genetic counselor believing herself that the person with a disability can have so many different life options and presenting that to the parent right there up front, as opposed to, well, you could have some respite time to think about your options. You can have, you know, there is options if you don't feel you can cope with this child, or if you, you know, if you're taking this child home, we'll give you all the resources that you can look into getting early intervention services and medical care. Um, no, what about telling me about the life my child could live? What about educating me about the possibilities so that I, as the parent, walk out of that hospital with a whole changed attitude? I, as the parent, don't walk out as a victim of a situation, but as an advocate for my child, a, a team player that's going to, you know, be part of this team to make sure my child's life achieves, you know, we all want our children to achieve 110% of their potential. That's, you know, her parents' like natural instinct. So let that parent walk out of there believing their child's going to achieve 110% of their potential. But we walk out of there and us parents are victims. <laughs> we walk out feeling as victims before we even go out into the real world. We don't even feel empowered to fight for our children. Um, and as for like doctors and I, one of my most... Um, meaningful talks I do is I speak to fifth year genetic students when they like so fifth year medical students when they're finishing their course in genetics and they tell me this was the most powerful part of the entire studies because I put a human face this isn't just a set of diagnosis why aren't they bringing that into the medical profession why when a physical therapist or a school teacher or anyone meets my kid she only knows the diagnosis as per the textbook why is she not looking at my child first? How supportive have you found schools, teachers, and healthcare professionals? Again, it falls into this kindness category. Everybody means well. Like if I hear another school teacher tell me, your daughter is so cute. She is so special. Everybody loves her. My dog is cute. My dog is really sweet and so special. My daughter is 14 years old. She has needs, she has hopes, she has ambitions. I understand and that like that's such a merit to teach my child. No, the merit to include my child truly in society, not to make her feel like she's the kindness project on the side of society. So yes, they are very nice superficially, but no, they're not really getting that this child, I've seen meetings, I'll be like, okay, so what's the plan? Because now she's in eighth grade. I'll be, I don't expect her to go to Harvard. I don't expect her to go to medical school. I would like her to participate in her matriculation or, well, we call bug root subjects here. 
I don't care if she does one unit or five units. I don't care if she passes or fails. I want her to feel part of the class and to learn to the maximum of her ability for each course. And I see them look at me like I've fallen off my rocker, like I just landed from Mars and came with some crazy idea. Why can't they believe that my child is capable? And every year we have to go through this. I remember in third grade, a math specialist saying, Mrs. Samuels, you really should evaluate what your math goals for your daughter. You know, she's like third grade math is enough for her to be able to count and add. No, she's in eighth grade now and she's still doing math. We just had another evaluation where they like lowballed her. Why can't they believe our children are capable? So yes, they're superficially very supportive, but it's sort of like high-fiving. You know, when someone goes and high-fives your kid and they're, yeah, how many of those kids in like at the end of the day are inviting your kid over when your kid's sitting alone on a Saturday night and they're all going out for pizza? A high-five is not inclusion and neither is saying, oh, your daughter is so sweet and we have her in the school. That is not inclusion. So radical inclusion is an entire shift in mindset. And it comes right from the top down. It seems to me that one thing you were touching on here were negative attitudes that may not even be consciously negative attitudes, but simply the assumption that certain people might not be able to achieve. And that assumption may be self fulfilling. Is that what you're referring to? That's exactly what I mean. Exactly. The negative reactions, the negative assumptions. And that plays out because it plays out in the way that if you think about it at school, if you had a kid at home, an older sibling assumes a younger sibling maybe can't reach in a closet. So they'll help them. So mm -hmm. they're doing everything for this kid. They're doing it in a well-meaning way. But if you're not letting my kid strive and achieve to be the best she can, then she's not going to strive and achieve to be the best she can because everybody's giving it to her. So, yes, you know, kindness kills. Yesterday I saw a quote from the WHO website that defines disability in the following way. A person's environment has a huge effect on the experience and extent of disability. Disability results from the interaction between individuals with a health condition with personal and environmental factors, including negative attitudes, inaccessible transportation in public buildings, and limited social support. And they also put out a short blurb did you know disability is part of being human almost everyone will temporarily or permanently experience disability at some point in their life i think we're speaking the same language as that quote i think that when we change society at all levels and we have to change it at all levels and i actually have my eight levels of how I believe that, you know, it's much longer discussion than this, but how we need to make the change into society, we ultimately will achieve what that definition says. And I believe that when we give parents, starting with those parents, and those parents understand that there's not just genotype, but there's phenotype, and how your child's gene expresses itself has a lot of impact and the environment. 
And we don't even educate the parents, which could then create this positive environment. And we don't educate even the professionals out there, the healthcare professionals are not engaging with that perspective. And I would love to see research because research, because like ironically, Down syndrome and many genetic differences show with different phenotypal manifestations. So it's very hard for them to study it. Down syndrome has been around for 155 years. It was diagnosed and has one of the least bodies of studies done around it because there's such variations in how people express their Down syndrome. And as a result of that, they've only recently started doing studies on an individual level. And now we have to take those studies from an individual level. We have to take that data and we have to now expand it to be able to understand how we can give these people individual support, not support that makes the whole population better, individual support. We have to give that person that individual support to maximize the environment, to maximize um, their access, their socialization. And on the other side, we have to change society because it doesn't help if we give them all the support and they're still going to go out there and every single year you're going to have a school teacher. It's going to be you're so cute. The ultimate goal of radical inclusion is when we are only supporting people when they need support. We are only giving them protection when they need protection. And we are only giving them help when they need help. Right now, that is not how the system's designed. <laughs> the system's designed not to help the individual achieve their maximum in society. It seems to me that what you're saying is supported by a change in the past decades on the view of genetics, which was considered very much to be deterministic. That view has gradually changed. It would seem some research shows that on average, genetics determines outcomes of most health conditions to a degree of about 30%. It depends on the health conditions and environment to about 70%. Again, depending on what we're talking about, it is supported by science that change in the way we include and in the environment can have, it's not just a good thing to do, the right thing to do, it actually has major impact on outcomes, just as is attested by the fact that people with Down syndrome, for instance, live 20 to 30 years longer than they used to live. Without a question. I mean, you just look at kids who come from lower socioeconomic homes or abusive homes where they, and you could have a perfectly able kid who's not able to achieve their potential. So 100% the environment plays a part. Radical inclusion is about creating that environment to be able to change the world for all our all people with disabilities. And I sort of feel like what it's like we've, we've created this world where we, we've created institutions that give themselves lots of ticks, but we're not really measuring it against how much are we changing the world for these people? What advice, Jody, would you give to parents or a parent who's just learned that their child or future child has trisomy 21? That the child is your child first and their diagnosis second. This is a human being who will bring joy and love and in many ways, an uncomplicated child. They come with their challenge, but without the complications that some of your other children come with. You have to always just remember, this is your child first, not the diagnosis. What advice would you give to an individual 
who's just learned they had a genetic difference and perhaps they weren't aware of it. Not the case with your child, but it's the case with many genetic differences that are not necessarily detected at such a young age or and sometimes never detected even during a lifetime. They have the power to influence the outcomes of how, how the reality is. Even my daughter with Down syndrome, who might have like cognitive challenges, she also has she has a lot of ability to influence. She's not just a, you know, a being that only responds to stimuli. She has the ability to make choices, make decisions, and determine which kind of world she's going to live in. Each of her choices have consequences. And not to be this victim. You know, a lot of people, as soon as they put a label, they also like become victim. And I think there is no time better in history to be diagnosed with the challenge because there's so much medical advancement. There is so much information. There is so much more awareness. And there are so many groups of people advocating for change. And they can be part of that. They can be part of that change. What advice would you give to teachers and doctors? I think if you truly come from a perspective that every single child or every single person is meant to be here and bring something to this world, you'll immediately shift your perspective. So we travel all over the world and there's a Jewish organization called Chabad. They're like this famous Jewish organization in um, Brooklyn and they have branches all over the world. They say they have as many branches as places where Coca-Cola is sold. It's so amazing to me that I've been to 89 countries. I've visited the 67 different Chabad houses. And I've never, ever seen people treat my daughter one drop differently, not a child, not an adult. And when you're like fully immersed in that philosophy and you truly believe we are all equal, and we all have value. You just don't treat a person differently. It's like quite phenomenal to see that there just isn't this knee-jerk reaction. There isn't this immediately, what does the textbook say? What does the diagnosis say? What are the symptoms? What are the, you know, ceilings, the glass ceilings? I get the feeling, Jody, that you would probably agree with me that regardless of belief or not in God, it's possible to believe in the dignity of all humans and respect for all humans and to have that attitude as well. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think sometimes that that's missing. I think we do it in a superficial way, but it's not really in an internal way. So going back to that kid high-fiving, yeah, but really, if that kid understood really what respect and dignity was, he'd pick up the phone and include your kid. He'd say, come play in the game. You're like, what are you doing Saturday night? It manifests right through. So, yes, it's about true respect, true dignity is not something you pay lip service to. It's something you actually incorporate. That's why I say, like, people with disability, we want people to open their hearts, their homes, their schools, their community centers. Then you know you've got true dignity. Then you know you've got true respect. To be fair, that can be... A journey, can't it? I mean, speaking personally, I would say that I've made all the mistakes I could almost possibly make as a parent. And I say, you know, do I think that it's not that it's all bad? I say it's like charity. 
if mm. you give charity begrudgingly, even if you were begged to give that charity and you didn't really want to and you gave much less than you needed to, you still gave charity. You still did something good. It's not that it's bad. It's just that we know the highest form of charity is being able to give someone a job, not to make them constantly have to come beg you for your for your small little. So absolutely, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's a stepping stone. It's not that it's all bad or all good. But I believe that we in society have gotten, gotten stuck somewhere and we've stopped. <laughs> we, we, we thought we had achieved the peak. And the peak is nowhere. You know, it's like you climb a mountain, you get to the top, and then suddenly you're like almost out of air and oxygen. You've built your, you know, stamina. You go, and it's like, oh, you mean inclusion somewhere else? There's another peak. And I think that we set the ball too low. That's why I say it's good, good enough. Yes, we've come a long way. Yes, all these things are good. And I've made, like you, every single one of those mistakes. What I'm trying to do, and I'm probably still making those mistakes, what I'm trying to do is reimagine what it could look like mm -hmm. if we didn't think all this mediocrity was good enough. <laughs> it's what we've just been discussing in this sort of um, second part of the conversation, part of the focus of your next book. Yes, my next book is going to be a practical guide with a deep dive in my personal stories. So it's going to be modeled on the lessons I've learned. And then I am going to share my journey and I'm going to show how those lessons are the building blocks of helping your child to be included in society. And I mentioned in the book, I tell all the stories with all the vulnerabilities, with all the failings, with all the struggles and also the successes, because I think it will be not only a guide for parents, but also for professionals to see the real human side of it, the struggles, the vulnerabilities, but also giving the toolkit required to try and make these steps forward, especially when it feels overwhelming, either as a community professional or as a parent to make changes. Because inclusion without practical action is not inclusion. Right. If you could go back in time, Jody, and say something to yourself when you first learned of your daughter's genetic difference, or even first had the intuition before she was born of a potential difference, with the benefit of your experience today, what would you say to yourself? Firstly, I would tell myself to take it one day at a time, because I like sort of want you to jump off a cliff and take you know, I was worried about 50 years down the line. So about taking it one day at a time. And I share the analogy, you know, when you started like high school or university and you got in the good old days when we used to have things like textbooks and you got these really big, thick, heavy books and you thought, how am I ever going to get through that workload? <laughs> and then you did and the next year you went and you got even a much bigger, higher pile of more books and you thought, but how am I going to get through and I think that when you're navigating a child with challenges, you have to just be able to stop and do it one day, one week, one month at a time, and not like jump fast forward to 27 years later, will my child get married or will they have a job? Or, and I think that what I've said before, you cannot stop being a mom or dad. And I remember that at one point, I had so many therapists telling me things to do and, and do this and do that and work on this and me being a type A mother. 
I literally got to the point that I was lying in bed with my daughter trying to get, and I was like, love, I love you. And I was like, I turned into a speech therapist. I wasn't being her mom. I need to sometimes just be her mom first. When there's a sibling who gets special attention, the others sometimes get a little bit less attention, especially as a parent, if you don't have the right kind of support, there's going to be some sacrifice in some areas. Would you agree with that? Without a question, I think my other children grew up in a home where their sibling got a lot of attention. You know, in our situation, they were older. And what we tried to do was make them part of Team Kayla therapy as opposed to bystanders or watchers or nuisances in the way we made it very much part of that you know if a physical therapist came and said you know you really need to work on this then we said can you help work on this we made them feel like they were part of the team but yeah look there's no question still to this day when i think how much time and how many hours i spend every single day on homework just with kayla that i you know what took my other kids an hour would take three there's no question She's, we take more time. I think what's important as a parent in this situation is to make sure you have special time with each of your kids. It's not about how much time, but making sure they have alone time, special time, feel valued, that they can get you when they need you. They can look you in the eye without your phone or without the other child being around when they need you. The last few questions I have for you are originally from a popular literary show in France. What is your favorite word? Unstoppable. What is your least favorite word? Can't. I hate the word I can't. I feel like instead of being a contraction of cannot, it says it's actually like can't is I can if I want to. <laughs> what makes you happy gives you joy family time spending time with the gang <laughs> what sound or noise do you love the sea the crashing waves what sound if any do you hate the sound of like chalk going against a board <laughs> that like a younger generation wouldn't know what that's like to hear like chalk scraping against the board but it really like gives me the chills <laughs> What, what is your favorite curse word? I think son of a monkey. What profession other than yours, if any, would you like to attempt? So one of my deep passions is travel and I've been to 89 countries and counting. I think I'd love to be a travel guide or photojournalist. What profession would you not like to participate in? Well, it couldn't be something like a computer engineer or like a data analyst who just sat in front of the screen and not, you know, I have to be with people. And finally, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear the Almighty say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I would hope that the Almighty saw that I tried to live the mission I wake up doing every day, and that is to make an impact in my world, to change my corner of the world in my own little way each day. Thank you for listening to this second of two episodes with Jody Samuels, author, speaker, entrepreneur, and disability advocate. As you heard, Jody relentlessly questions our current approach to disability and genetic difference. 
The reason she says she hates kindness isn't because she believes kindness isn't a good thing. She recognizes it is, but because she believes it is not good enough and we can do better. And by doing better, she doesn't mean being a little more kind or giving a bit more, not that it would hurt, but that such performative displays of generosity mask the continuing basic reality of social exclusion. In other words, as I understand it, Jody's call for radical inclusion is a call to fundamentally change the way we consider and support difference, both in our personal lives, as well as our health systems, educational systems, and social support systems. Perhaps the biggest takeaway of this episode is not an answer, but a question. Why, despite all the talk about inclusion, are people with disability still ending up socially excluded? And what do we plan to do about it? If you wish to stay posted on Jody Samuels News, an upcoming book with practical guidance for parents with disabilities, I encourage you to check out her website, jodysvoice.com, and follow Kaylee's World. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did recording it. Please show your support by donating today. With your help, we will ensure an easy listening experience so you can access engaging and authoritative information on common genetic diversity, notified to you weekly in your inbox. Don't miss our next episode, Boxing with a Shadow, featuring Peter Street, a man from Australia who found out about his extra X chromosome at the age of 63 and who shares the story of what it can be like to go through life with an undetected genetic difference only to find out after an over 50-year diagnostic odyssey. Thanks again for listening, and have a wonderful day.